We have been consumed by a malevolent narrative that has replaced our souls, our transcendent selves, and turned us into consumers, debt slaves, or in the words of Alex Sakaris, biological robots living in a meaningless universe. The money myth is one of the few and maybe the most powerful universal narratives. The reality of money is based entirely on the unquestioned belief in the story of the dollar. But how many of us really know what money is and how it is created? If we dare to question the established worldview, we must re-envision our reality and create our own myths. Our future as a species depends on the quality of the questions we ask and the stories we tell. It really is that simple. We have reached the twilight of the Archons, and it's time we began to write our own stories, forge our own identities, and liberate ourselves to our highest destinies. Hello everyone, you've just been listening to clips from the documentary film Twilight of the Archons, produced by today's guest, Robert Bonomo. Robert came on the show a couple of years ago to explain the origins of money and its corruption in the modern financial system. He returns today to discuss his documentary, where he looks at these issues through a Gnostic spiritual lens. Robert also lived in Russia for a number of years, so I ask him his perspective on the current goings-on there. I've always been fascinated with money, and then I've been very interested, I would say, in the last three or four years in Advaita, sort of the non-dual path. Yeah. So I wanted to make something that somehow connected the two. And that was really the inspiration to come up with a film that talked about money, spirituality, and somehow tried to bring them together. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I was successful, but that was the inspiration behind it. And I began that before COVID. Right. So I had finished the first section before COVID. I had to trash the whole thing and start over again because the world was just too crazy. I'm like, how can I finish this film with all this going on? Like it was too much. So I stopped and then I started again and I finally got through it. So it was just, just to make sure the listeners coming along with us, when you say money, you're really talking about a financial control grid and the word archon I, being this, this power, this ruler, not of this world, some, some kind of force that's lording it over us. Exactly. In the cultural sense, the monetary, the financial sense and, um, and the spiritual sense. And that was the one thing I, you know, I tried to weave in there was it's very similar how we can get sucked into, if you think from, say, from a non-dual point of view, you no, know, who, who are you actually? It's kind of the question no one ever asks, you know, mm-hmm. that question, well, exactly, who, who am I? This the I? most and least obvious question, it seems. <laughs> and it's also the same question with money. What is this stuff exactly? You know what I mean? It's, it's mm. a question that nobody really asks. Um, so that was really, I, it was those two questions. And I thought, well, maybe I can weave them together. And that was sort of the inspiration. Yeah, it's funny. I I probably told you this last time, but I remember sitting down as like a 14-year-old and we had, I don't know, we meant to be doing a textiles class or something. And I just drew a little map out of a village and tried to understand, like, okay, let's say 100 people move to an entirely new town and you've got your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker, you've got your teacher and you join all these different professions and somebody makes the money, right? They're going to have a government to maybe do the roads and create the money and i kept thinking well, how are they interjected because they could just create all the money and hand it to people but that wouldn't work because who knows what it's worth and how much is a butcher's time compared to a baker's and i really like thought this should be simple and it wasn't until 15 years later when i just happened to cross murray rothbard's mystery of banking and in, in 20 pages literally 20 pages he explained it, it like no no <laughs> it's a thing like it could be any commodity that then <laughs> it gets this useful function of like, you want eggs? No, I don't want eggs. You want it? So no, we don't have that. Oh, we've got this metal here. That's, um, that, that's valuable. So that, and that's not going to perish. So we'll exchange that as a, to, to loosen up that, that barter system. Um, and yeah, just like clear as day. And the, the thing that shines through is the state is not involved in this. <laughs> you know, there is the, the thing I thought, absolutely. It must be the government's job. I mean, the queen is on every banknote. It must be the government. They must do that. How, how could you have different, competing currencies, everyone prints their own money, it's crazy. And then to see that, no, the state isn't involved in this at all and can't be involved in the creation of it. But yeah, that was, well, the, the most elemental question, and it, that, I think that's what struck me at the time, is like, well, there's not a class on this, everything else we do, we don't do a, a class at school on where money comes from, that's weird. 
Yeah, and it, it's very interesting. Are you familiar with modern monetary theory? Yeah. Now, the MMT folks would argue with you. They would say you're completely wrong. Without a state, there is no money. And they make an interesting argument. It's worthwhile to look into what, what they say because for them, it's a sovereign tax credit. That's mm. all money is. It's just a, a, a tax credit. Anything else are um, mar oh, money-flavored marketing tokens. That's the terminology. Right. Money-flavored marketing tokens. Sounds a lot like quantitative easing to me, but I've gotten a lot of debates with them. I, there's some things about them that I find really interesting, but sometimes they will not accept anything but sovereign tax credit as money. So you tell them, for example, for them, gold is not money. Bitcoin is not money. Right. I got in a really interesting debate with, uh, it was a professor. He was arguing that Bitcoin is not money and can't be money because it's not a sovereign tax credit. But I said, well, in El Salvador, now you can pay your taxes in Bitcoin. He said, that, okay, then in El Salvador, it's money. <laughs> right. That's a strange definition. I mean, in a sense, yeah. I, mean, I, I'm, I don't understand it well enough like I could get on a stage and explain what it is, but I have sort of have a, a basic understanding. And I guess from their perspective, there's a truth in that, that mm -hmm. um, the money, that kind of money, fiat currency, couldn't work without the state. And I remember watching a, a debate with the uh, Austrian economist Bob Murphy, um, Professor Murphy, debating a, a modern monetary theorist. And I think Bob was setting him up for a kind of uh, one-two punch. He was, gonna, he was saying a big point. And then the guy just walked right into it. Bob's point was this whole thing requires violence to back it in some sense. It requires a man with a gun somewhere to force you to take yeah. these, these tokens. And th before Bob got to that point, the modern monetary theorist came out with that straight away and said, oh yeah, of course, like these tickets, they could be valueless, but it valueless. But if there's a man of a gun at the door, then suddenly they get value. And Bob couldn't quite believe it. It's like, you've just made my, you know, but he didn't see a problem with that. He didn't see the problem. Oh, because the state can legitimately use violence to, to force people to use the, the money of the picture of the, the monarch on the head or the, the president. Exactly. And they make a good point. And if, you, if they, they know their history, the MMT folks, and they will, they will give you a history of money showing you that most like, you know, in, in, in the, well, in, in, in England, they use those sticks where they would cut the, uh, and then they would break them. Mm. Tally sticks. Tally yeah, sticks. Yeah. There's a word for them. I'm sorry. It's, I'm escaping me, but they, they, they it's a very interesting argument. And I, I'm not here to say I'm the, you know, I know I, I'm going to give you the answers. It's a very, they make a good argument. Um, I like some of the things they say. However, with what's going on in the world today with inflation, especially in Turkey, because Turkey did something very MMT-ish, is when they lost control of the lira, usually you raise interest rates. Mm -hmm. The MMT people believe all interest rates should be at zero. And Erdogan dropped them. He dropped interest rates. And initially, the lira recuperated, but now he's completely lost control of it. Inflation in, in Turkey now is about 70 or 80%. Wow, right. And the, the lira is just, it's just losing it. And so it's, it, it's sort of the moment of truth for MMT. They always say a little inflation is okay. Um, ask people in the UK now, what's inflation now in the UK? I don't it's know. Really, it, yeah, it's it is really ridiculous, high. yeah. The, the latest numbers came out that were ridiculously high. Mm. You know, so it's, it's a very interesting moment for these theories because, okay, <laughs> inflation's okay, ask <laughs> Well, it's interesting because you know? I, I would say a lot of Austrian economists, pure free market economists, predicted a much higher rate of inflation coming out of the 0809 financial right. crisis. And that didn't materialize. There were even, even bets made uh, that were then yeah. lost by Austrians. Um, and so what I glean from that is, oh, this is, we have a theory of like the business cycle and so on, but it's, it's kind of harder to say like how that actually plays out in the real world, then you can't make predictions for what prices are going to be on the shelves necessarily. Yeah, I can give, I mean, if you want, I can give you what I can sort of tell you what happened there. Yeah, please do. Yeah. Sure. So in when when they began quantitative easing, remember, quantitative easing is when the central bank goes out in the open market and buys assets from other banks. This stays within what are um, bank deposit, uh, bank um, uh, reserves, reserve accounts at the Fed. What happened with all that quantitative easing money? You know where it all went? Almost penny for penny into assets. So if you look at the S&P 500, was there no inflation in the S&P 500? 
from 660 in March of 2009 to where is it now at 3,500? Right. Okay. Yeah. So it all went into assets. So there was asset inflation. Okay. Now it's very interesting. And, and if you look at this, it's very hard for people to understand. We are in an environment in the world that's incredibly deflationary, massively deflationary. Technology is deflationary. Demographics are deflationary. So you have the deflationary push on one side, and then you have the monetary policy on the other, and they're fighting each other. But what we're seeing right now is really a product, a lot of American stimulus checks, because those checks didn't go to central banks. They went to people. And what did people do? I mean, the government gave people a ton of money. They spent it. So you have a a massive increase in demand. Supplies messed up because of COVID. Supply chains are messed up. And people's consume, the way people consume has changed. They stay at home now. They're not driving around, going to restaurants and bars. So the the whole supply chain doesn't even fit the new demand. So that's that's what's going on now. And it's really... Yeah. That's the right thing to do when the government gives you money, isn't it? Is to spend it as quickly as possible because you're you're getting your stuff before the prices inevitably inflate. Especially if there's inflation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So yeah, it's an inter- it's a very interesting moment for all I think economists because now we're starting to see very very big movements in lots of different places. And to, you know, anyone anyone tells you right now they know what's going on, I, I, you know, someone comes out and says this was going to happen. I think it's it's one of those moments we don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to fall into a serious recession with deflation, or are we going to get into some sort of stagflation? That's it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. So going back to the documentary, then with the use of the word "archons," yeah, what's your meaning when you use that word? It's really the Gnostic meaning of the archons. So in, in the Gnostic sense, you have the Demiurge, who, who's, and there's a God above God. Then you have this Demiurge who's sort of either malvolent or sort of neutral and who controls the world are the Archons. You could think of them as sort of the planetary gods. They do his bidding and they keep us constrained on earth in that Gnostic sense. Of we're sort of chained here in this prison. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was using of the Archons because, and I make the point in the film that the real Archons are us. Right, okay. We're our own Archon. That's what, that's what I played a little bit of a game because I'm sure some people were watching it saying, oh yeah, it's Bill Gates or it's, you know, the Illuminati. And then I try and flip the, flip the script a little bit and go, look, you know, you're your own Archon. Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. It's a word that works on, I think, different levels, because I've no doubt the archons exist, but I'm not sure exactly what they are. So on one level, it is the Bill Gateses and the, the people on the control. And you go beyond that, maybe you can say archons aren't people or things or uh, spirits or anything, but they're, they're the structures we set up. And then ultimately, you end up looking in a mirror and seeing, as you're saying, I think that's the, the last level of insight. Egregores, maybe. Who knows what the hell they are, you know? But they're in our minds. They're definitely in our minds, you know? And I think that's, that's, it's a really interesting question because actually I was speaking with um, some Russians that I know. And a lot of Russians now think that there's this sort of Illuminati group in the world that's just hell bent on destroying Russia. Like that's, that's the, that's what's happening. And I lived in Russia and I remember asking them, well, where, where we live, I don't want to go into the place because, you know, but is there corruption here? And, you know, we could talk, we talked about some events where, you know, people died and the levels of corruption. And I said, is that the Illuminati or is that, you know, you guys? And did you stand up to any of this corruption? And when these people were killed, did you guys say, you know, this is wrong? There was one case, um, very serious corruption where many people were killed. And I wanted to write an article on it. And people just said, don't do it, please. Mm -hmm. So I didn't because I didn't want to get people in trouble. Hmm. But I remember you told me, I told them, I said, you told me not to write that. And I said, the people who did that, were they, you know, was that Bill Gates and uh, the Illuminati, or was that you, your society, your culture, doing that to yourselves? People don't like that. <laughs> because that nobody wants to say, yeah, it's it's the house we built and this is the way we built it and it's, and it's fucked up. You know? Yeah. 
Well, we see that in the, the West right now. I mean, George W. Bush is just on this thing that I'm sure you know, as I say, it's hard to believe it's not deliberate, where he's a brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, Ukraine. <laughs> I thought it was a joke or that somebody did some weird yeah. thing with like the voice. Yeah. I, I had to watch it three times. I was in, I, I live in Tunisia. So, you know, people aren't real fond of George Bush and they look very poorly on the Iraq war. And we were in the teacher's lounge and people were just rolling over. I mean, it was just hysterical. Yeah. And I'm not sure if he understood what he'd done or not. If he, if it occurred to him, <laughs> the irony of the situation, just, he just seemed to be water off a duck's back. I don't know. But it, yeah, it's it's really incredible. Um, you know, I've often wondered from a moral kind of point. Did you see Oliver Stone's film on um, on on W? Did you see that film? Not the one on W. No, it, it no. was pretty interesting. I mean, there's a point where you see him kind of you know drinking his milk and going to bed at nine o'clock, and you know that sort of did, did, the moral. I mean, imagine going living with that, knowing you. Did. It must. It doesn't seem to phase a guy like. You don't see it kind of... No. No, No, it's inside. I mean, I remember um, listening to an interview with uh, St. John Hunt, the son of E. Howard Hunt, the CIA officer who was the principal architect of uh, Operation PP Success, the overthrow of the government of Guatemala in the 50s. And St. John is very insightful, the family members and children of CIA officers and and people like that. And St. John Hunt said his father was telling him about this and how he was down there and he was fighting communism. That's why I did it. And he said, Dad, like 14,000 people died in that. Don't you feel bad? Said, no, not at all. No, it's collateral damage. National security, that's it. Who cares? It just didn't phase him. Didn't phase him in the slightest. It was yeah. far more than 14,000 as the years rolled by. But no, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it is kind of extraordinary. But on the other hand, do we need people like that? Maybe we do. You know, I mean, if, 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 if humans didn't have that capacity, would we, would we have survived? Yeah. As homo sapiens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's on the other side of the question too. So, mm. you know, maybe, we, maybe that's just part of who we are. I so don't know. Just picking up then on what you said about um, living in Russia, you were there in Russia and Ukraine for around, Five years? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I never lived in. Uh, I never lived in Ukraine. I've been there, but I've never. Right. Been, I've never lived there. I was in Russia from uh, on and off, and it's interesting the dates from around 2008 till I think I left 2016. But there was a period there where I was in China. I lived in China for uh, about two years, but that was an interesting period because in 2008 something very important happened, which was the war in Georgia. Mm. So something changed there, you know, and you could see the, you could see people change. And there was a very big change, of course, after 2014, you know, a very big shift. Right, right. Um, in, in, in Russia. And um, so it, it's a very interesting period to, to see. People's relationship with Putin changed a lot. When I first arrived there, people looked at him as a politician. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say he, there was this kind of cult of personality. And that evolved. You saw that evolve. Um, quite quite well, powerfully. I found the war in Georgia interesting. I was trying to understand it a bit more recently mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And there's two narratives of that war in the West. The, the one is the one that I would imagine is predominant in Russia and the kind of anti-war movements in, in the West, that Russia was essentially engaging in a, a humanitarian intervention to save the South Ossetian people from being massacred by the Georgians. I imagine that's predominant in Russia. And then you get the more neoconservative um, line on it as well. That, no, this was all um, set up and the Georgians were responding to this aggressive Russian incursion. So essentially the same two narratives that arise now about Ukraine are mirrored back in 2008. What was your sense of it being in Russia at the time and the Russian people's image yeah, of what was going on? For them, it was um, exactly because in South Ossetia, remember the Russians moved in there and basically gave everyone Russian passports. And there's a little bit of coercion in that passport stuff when they, when they, you know, if you, if you want to be there, they make it like, so how Russian all of those people were in South Ossetia is not clear. And remember, what's his name? Uh, what was his name? Shakashvili? Shakashvili, the, the, yeah. He was out of his mind 
he was not a stable person. Actually, he, I think he was clinically depressed. I think he would, I think he might've been, um, um, what's that when people get depressed and then they get hyper uh, manic depressive. I think he might've been manic depressive. Right. He, and so he really, he was acting at a point, at a point that was irrational, but the Russian response there, I think was more, um, they took up, they took, they took the opportunity in 2008 during a political period where, Remember, at that time, Bush and Putin didn't, the relations weren't so bad. And that was mm. kind of a critical moment where they mm. kind of moved in. That changed a lot of things. You know, I honestly, I can't say I really understand because you got so many different narratives. Were the Georgians really doing this and that? But you see how the Russian narrative, they take that narrative and they applied it again in Crimea. Then they, they, cried it, they applied it in, in Ukraine. Now they're trying to apply it in Transnistria. This is, a, this is a narrative that the Russian people love right? because it brings them back to the Great Patriotic War, where we're saving our people. Okay. And when I lived in Russia, it's, that, that, that whole connection to them and the whole Great Patriotic War, I would say it's almost pathological. It's, it's not healthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, they reenact, you know, people going off to war. And, you know, I mean, it's like, it's... It's an obsession with them. It's like really deep part of their mythology. And if you look at exactly what happened, remember, they are eliminated. Like there's, they passed, have you seen those laws they passed in Russia where you can't talk about events between um, that period when the Russians invaded Poland and when the Germans invaded that to that, how I can't remember what, how, how long it was. But you know that period I'm talking about. Right, yeah. So you can't... Between the Ribbentrop-Molotov thing. Yeah, they've actually passed laws where you can't discuss what happened in that period. Right. The massacre in Poland. How were they killed? 20,000 intellectuals. They just murdered them all. Like, it, this is not all just, you know, beautiful and, and lovely. Hmm. Uh, so they, they create this mythology. And then they use that very powerfully to get people connected. You know, so there's something kind of dark about that. Right. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, in the um, the presentation I put together, I put it together because I've been sort of following the situation in Ukraine since, since 2014. I remember the, the Orange Revolution back and it seemed, yeah, sort of a pivotal place to understand. So I, I then saw people uh, get drawn very quickly into a narrative from the Western media. And I was aware, so I wanted to, I suppose, highlight NATO and the West's role in stoking the fires. Um, but I was aware maybe the weak point of the, the presentation was um, I didn't necessarily look at it. It was definitely not looking through an anti-Russian lens or a lens that was cri critical of Putin, if you like. Right. And that's one thing that, like, for example, when you discussed what happened in Odessa, yeah, that probably was that group. That they, I mean, they probably didn't. But remember, the Russians were stoking in, in Kherson, in, um, in Lugansk, and Donetsk. That was all them. I mean... They went in and provoked the, provoked all that. Right. They were unsuccessful in Mariupol, unsuccessful in Odessa, unsuccessful in Kharkov, unsuccessful in Kherson. But they they made it work in Donetsk and Lugansk, and then that war went on for you know, what till till today. Yeah, it was still till really, today. This, really, this war began in twenty fourteen, didn't it? That was completely funded by them. Mm -hmm. Totally funded by them. Um, there was a really interesting case, a really funny case where somebody in Russia got arrested for corruption with the military. <laughs> and in the documents, it showed that they were sending, I think it was beds, or I don't know, some sort of military equipment to the Donbass. And it was published online. <laughs> they had to take it down. So, I mean, remember, Russia was funding this thing 100%. So, you know, they, it's that part, I think, that's one thing that has to be clear. I mean, they created that and they, and, you know, and promoted it. If they hadn't have done that, that would have been the revolution, you know, the revolution would have ended and you would have had a, you know, an integral, an integral Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, there's two sides to that story. Yeah. 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 Very challenging to disentangle. So and I think that's one problem we've had it, that a lot of us follow certain people in the media and it was clear that the that the narrative had to continue. That there there's been a lot of people having a hard time pivoting. Hmm. It's like I'm I'm in this lane. Can I really change lanes? You know, can can the other side sometimes be right? You know, who are yeah. we dealing with? Yeah. Because 
very few people I know have actually lived in Russia. When you hear people who've lived in Russia talk about this, it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it's not a totalitarian state, but it's pretty authoritarian. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, imagine you go to a protest and this is a lot of things you don't hear in the news. The next day they call you an HR and they say, you can't work here anymore. You're done. You know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a tough place. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting when you say you in your the, office um, and saying, do you support the, you know, the uh, special military operation? And there's, there's a sense of justification of this, that they are under attack from some kind of Illuminati group. Yeah. It, it's interesting that you say that. I, I read David Rockefeller's biography a while back, and he recalls on his visit to Russia, the Politburo for that he ran the United States in a very direct, not at all subtle way, where he would walk into Nixon's office and say, this is the way it's going to be. And that, that was it. And Rockefeller was um, shocked by this, but they, they were reading John Birch Society conspiracy literature about how David Rockefeller was, was the spider at the center of every web. He, he is the kingpin. Um, so they, they thought that Rockefeller could just get them uh, special favored nation status and trading and all sorts. And they, he, he said they didn't understand the complexity of the system because it, it was more um, top down there, um, and he was a, he was a gas. Yeah. Now I think that David Rockefeller, you know, is immensely powerful, but in a slightly more subtle way than that. He did have influence, but he, I don't think he was slamming his fist on um, on the desk in the Oval Office. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and one of the thing, a lot of these people who like to who who like to believe in these types of you know the the, the Illuminati and stuff have never been, worked in organizations in big organizations. You know, have never been, you know, negotiating with, you've been in an organization where you're talking with the CEO, the CEO, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, try and get something done. Try and go to his, try and get anything done in a big organization. You're going to say David Rockefeller is going to, or Bill Gates runs the world? No, it's it's not, it's never that simple. No, okay, but it's, it's interesting that that seems to be something in the Russian mindset that's then, they Absolutely. see themselves as holy Russia and defending the world against wokeism and, and, so where do you think they are in relation to the kind of great reset narrative? Because I've heard like discussions on this that um, people taking very different positions on Russia and the ultimate um, goal of Russia, and it, with Vladimir Putin being one of the, uh, the, 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 the uh, Davos young leaders and so on. And um, how, how do you see them as like, like Russia's agenda there? Would they like to have that level of control over the population, but still being a separate entity from the Western power structure? I think it's it's as easy as looking at Dugan. You know, you you look at Dugan's work, Mm -hmm. and it's absolutely clear, Alexander Dugan. You see exactly what they think of the world and what their their worldview is. And that's their worldview. And and it is that straightforward. I, I really, I think he lays it out. It's this Eurasian model. There will, there will be a Eurasian great power and it'll be a multipolar world. The seafaring nations, the West, they're a traditional agricultural land-based society, and they need to defend their values, their uh, their culture, etc. If I think that if you if you listen to Dugan, you kind of for me that's when it clicked. I was right. like, I can see, and and it's Dugan. And you see his, his thinking in many, many ways in Russia. There's versions of his. I remember when I was there, I had a friend who brought me these tapes. It was called General Petrov. They're about, they're, it's on YouTube. You can try, you go to, if you go put General Petrov, you'll see these videos. I think there's like 50 of them. And they give this sort of vision of world history that's very Dugan esque, but it's a general explaining to you not what the history books said, but what really happened from this very sort of Eurasian, they're all against us kind of worldview. And I think that's what, that's the way they see it. I mean, there are people, like if you ask your typical Russian, you know, your, your typical Russian who supports the special military operation, who, you know, Z, go Z team. You ask him about Navalny, for example, they will say, they will, they will tell you that the Americans went in there, poisoned Navalny, and it was all just a, a stunt. It was all a stunt. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. If you, have you seen the video that Navalny made? Of, I'm sure you've seen it, though, where they shows how, they, how, they, how he was poisoned. I mean, come on. This was the FSB. It's clearly the FSB doing a half-assed job, <laughs> which is also very, you know. 
kind of typical of them. And even the Ukraine operation really is a half-assed operation of the FSB. Right. Full of corruption. You know, I mean, Putin thought that the FSB was going to go in there in the GRU and pay off all these police chiefs, mayors, but they had it all ready. The FSB was stealing all this money. They weren't giving the Ukrainians the money. They were stealing it. Writing reports saying, yeah, we're paying this guy. So when Putin says, okay, let's go, they're like, what? You're really going to do this? They moved in and the police chiefs hadn't been paid off. And the ones that maybe were paid off got a little nervous and said, you know what? You know, if you guys don't win, these guys are going to kill me. So I'm not on your team anymore. And then the whole thing collapsed. I mean, that's part of, you know, how it was, how it was done. So this, um, I imagine even since 2016, this Russian attitude to the West must have intensified as more of woke culture has emerged since then. I don't even remember it being a big thing until about 2015, and then it exploded onto the, our screen since then. Yes, this was a major issue for them, and that, that was been promoted with them. When I first got to Russia, I remember people were very interested in the West. They wanted to travel. Um, the archives, remember, the archives were opened in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. The KGB archives, people were looking in, seeing exactly what happened. The area where I lived, I mean, there were some horrific things and people were actually seeing the amount of people who died, family members who were killed. All of a sudden, in the early 2000s, the archives get shut um, and people start talking about, I remember friends who were pretty open-minded saying, you know, in Australia, everyone's gay. And I was like, what? Or gay Europa. <laughs> everything was, everything in Europe is gay. And, it, they, and this was promoted from the Kremlin of this idea of our values against their values. Right. And it became very kind of xenophobic, kind of weird, you know? I remember how they hated Obama. Obama was hated, despised. Was that because of you anything know, he did in particular with regard to Russia? I don't know how they feel about um, Clinton, say, right? Because he was the president when the whole ransacking of the Russian economy went on. And that's what they really should have been angry about. Right. You know, I mean, that period in the 90s was, you know, when Harvard went there yeah. and how much those guys stole and how they taught them. They taught them how to trade commodities and just, you know, make a killing. You know, the shares for, you know, your, you know you're not getting paid, but, you know, give me those shares you have and I'll, and I'll pay your salary. And that's how all those companies were taken over. I mean, they just stole the whole country and they taught them how to do that. Um, and that, that's a horrible, that's a horrible, that's. The, what they most hate about Clinton, though, was the bombing of um, in Serbia. For them, and I have a very close friend who's a good journalist, interviewed Yeltsin, and she told me that was the point when they completely lost faith in the West. And from our point of view, you know, I mean, not that I was that informed at the time, but they don't seem, they'll, they'll never discuss what the Serbians were doing to the Bosnians, you know? So I never saw it. I never saw it as so clear cut as this was a horrible, you know, uh, disrespectful act to Orthodox culture. You know, I thought, yeah, but I mean, what's going on with? I mean, I remember as a kid watching Romeo and Juliet in um, in Sarajevo. It was a beautiful documentary about those. I mean, I don't know if you remember that famous picture of the Bosnian girl and the Serbian guy who were shot, and their the two bodies were on top of each no, other. No, I don't. No. Oh, it's a beautiful documentary. And it just talks about what was going on in Sarajevo. It was horrible. So you only hear that one side of it. So yeah, they hated Clinton for that. Really hated him for that. Right. And Obama, I remember the, the Sochi Olympics. There was, it got quite heated then. And there was a lot, a lot of, uh, that, that's when a lot of criticism of Russia's policies towards homosexuality started to be spoken about a lot in, in the media. I've heard from uh, people involved in the U.S. administration at the time. That was genuinely a hot-button issue that a lot of people felt very passionately about. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that seemed to be a, a point of division arising then. Is that the kind of reason why they dislike Obama? Yeah, in, in Obama, the Obama administration, I think sometimes was very heavy-handed with these, these types of issues. 
But at the same time, they didn't mind bombing Libya or you know starting war in Syria. So there was an enormous amount of hypocrisy there. Yeah. And, and for the Russians, you, have, you know, the Olympics for them, that was important, that Olympics. And if you watch the Western coverage of it, it was just they, they from the get go, they were out to criticize um, Sochi, the Olympics. And remember, I was talking to a friend of mine who said Putin's not going to do Ukraine. And I said, wait till February, not 24th, 21st. On the 21st, that's when Putin gave a speech. That's when the troops moved into Lugansk and in, in Donbass, no? They moved into the, in Lugansk and Donetsk. The Russians moved in, and that night, he gave a televised kind of speech. And I said, the, watch this, the 21st is when he's going to do it. Because remember, during the Sochi Olympics, that's on the 21st is when Yanukovych left. And that's the day. So during the Sochi Olympics, which for Putin was... The big for the Russians, the Olympics is a very, very big thing. They pulled it off right in his face on that day. Yeah. And that did not, having done that on the 21st for me was something that was personal. With Putin, Ukraine, I think people don't talk about this. It's very personal for him. Very personal. Mm. Well, I got that sense watching his speech on it i was reading the the translations but it's much better to to watch it than just to yeah. read a transcript because that comes through you know the the sense of anger sense of passion about this issue it's not like watching a western president speak no. a u.s president speak and remember for him i mean i think people now understand how important ukraine is to russia historically culturally religiously we all know that i don't have to go through that Remember, on his big day, I think it was two days before the closing ceremony, he loses Kiev, loses it. So, I mean, in chess, that's your queen. I mean, if Moscow is your king, uh, Kiev is your queen. He loses his queen on, you know, three days before the closing ceremony in Sochi. They truly reigned on his party. And that, that was not lost on him. I remember talking to... Um, Let's just say somebody in the intelligence community from their side. And I, and I asked him about that. I said, uh, he said, well, this, that, and the other thing. I said, I said, but aren't you underestimating your enemy a little bit? Because, you know, they took Kiev from you three days before the closing ceremony. This guy, he should have seen the, the smoke coming out of his ears. I wanted to give him a little, you know, those type of people there. I'm sure you've met a few. But to throw that one at him, oh, my God, I thought he was going to explode. I said, you know, they're not that dumb, huh? <laughs> Even they may be gay, but they're not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, coming round then back to the the twilight of the archons. What was the what message would you hope people would take from that whole documentary on the nature of the financial system, on the um, on the nature of consumerism and materialism and ultimately about the nature of our true identity and consciousness i think it i think it is we rarely ask that fundamental question and and, and i know you have a background in in sort of non-dual advice yeah that's that's my background yeah and i think it takes a long time for many of us who've been on different spiritual paths to get to the point where we ask ourselves that fundamental question, like, what am I? Who am I? And once you get to that question, I think things do seem to coalesce a little bit more. No, it's, it, there's a shift yeah. when that question becomes the focus. Um, but it's difficult to get there. No, it's not, it's not, I mean, it, it's not an easy place to arrive. No? And the same thing about how the world works. When you want to understand how the world works, can you understand anything about politics, economics, history, if we don't understand what money is? I mean, I ask kids. I teach, I teach A-level economics. So, you know, you got the 17-year-old, 18-year-old who's stu studying their A-levels for economics, and they all want to make money. And the first question I ask in the class is, so you want money? Yes. What is it? And they fumble. And I said, well, don't, shouldn't you understand what it is? You, do, you know the features of it. But do you really understand exactly what it is? 
And I think when you understand what money is, it, it can kind of reorient your, your view toward the physical world. And on the spiritual level, I think you have to reach that fundamental question. And I tried to poke at it a little bit in the film. You know? get If you can get to that question, you can sort of cut through a lot of nonsense in our culture. Right. It, it's interesting the, to me, the comparison. I was interested in the question of why the why why is this thing called conspirituality a thing? Why is there a, a parallel between people interested in spirituality involved in that and people interested in conspiracy, not just in conspiracy though, but in maybe that and a deeper understanding of the, yeah. the functionings of the material world. I think it's, um, it's something about awareness and an ability that some people have or gravitate towards being able to ask the very fundamental questions, like what's the axiom upon which all this is based and to turn one's attention within and look back to one's own center and say, well, what's the axiom upon which I am based? Where is the me thought in here? And that same kind of penetrating awareness projected out into the world, into the financial system, ends with the question of what is money projected onto the state, ends with what, what's the, the justification for this institution? And then you have anarchism arising, well, geopolitically, well, what, what's gone on in history? Who, what, what are the power plays here that have, have been made? And who, who's really pulling the strings? And so it's this, yeah, to me, there's a, a parallel between the spiritual and the temporal understanding. Exactly. And that, that's what I was trying to, trying to explore, let's say. Hmm. And it's not easy, you know? I mean, it's not, it, and that's why I really like the work you've done, because you look at kind of both sides of it. And it's very easy to fall off the cliff on either on either end, you know, to get lost in the conspiracy stuff yeah. that becomes just narcissistic nonsense. And then on the spiritual side to kind of go off and lose that that laser focus. You no. Know? And if you can keep that laser focus on both sides, where do you actually arrive? I'm not and I, I, I don't claim to be there yet, So, but I'm not sure if they both come together, and that's something I really wanted to ask you, where, where do you think, which does your intuition say, what would be the view once you get there? Would it just be, it's all a bunch of nonsense and you'd laugh at it? It would be like a joke. I think I'm a bit of a, a pluralist really. So I think that you probably have multiple ways of looking at it. You know, so in one hand, yeah, it's a bunch of nonsense and you'd have to have a laugh and a joke about it or you go mad. Other, so at the same time, it's deadly serious and, really important and another time at the same time again not important at all it is everything's arising in you know if you go to that pure place of everything's a dream my essential identity isn't in the dream it's the thing that's witnessing the dream then you can be like um what do they say the, the, the come back to the gnostics the um the gospel of judas where it's really judas is on the crucifix not jesus jesus stood in a cave laughing okay so makes jesus look rather sadistic but um it's an, allegorically like the the false limited self the, the 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 appearance of who we are that's judas and he's suffering as as you suffer in the world whereas jesus is our true essential essence our identity so he's laughing in a cave but at the same time there's there's terrible suffering so um i think that's it i think it's a it's many things at once i, I, I don't think one position is the true one if you like i think you need that combination yeah. But the identity, when we identify with a lot of these ideas, I think that's when we get sucked in. The same with ourselves. When we identify with this, this self that you kind of battle with, you no, know, like really, you know, it's that dance you also get, I think, in and in, in it's so we can be so manipulated by it. Think of mm -hmm. like patriotic urge. Yeah. It's so easy to play with people that way. And the the lack of courage that people have in, in actually looking in the mirror. It's so easy to throw them the patriotic bone and, you know, have well, get them all running. You know? Something I've been intrigued to see over the past few years is how easy it seems for the archons, whatever the archons are, the power structures, to direct human attention and tell a massive proportion of the population what is important to care about this week and what we can ignore altogether so suddenly covid became this central important thing and the ramifications of lockdowns whether you know four or five million people starve in india because of them that doesn't matter that they're not worthy victims all of a sudden because the thing you must feel compassion for is covid victims and only covid victims and then we see the same thing that 
all of a sudden everyone's uh, Facebook profile is blue and yellow for the, for Ukraine because that's that's the thing this week. But yeah. Yemen, where hundreds of thousands of people died in in a war that's actually backed fully to the extent they're effectively fighting in it uh, by countries that most of us live in the US or or the UK. Um, but that wasn't important. There was no direction. The state said, no, that's not important. Don't put your attention on that. And the ability of the, these archontic forces to take human attention, say this, place it here, place it here, place it here. That's, that's amazing to me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Like, I, I was having breakfast today with a friend of mine who's Libyan. And um, in Lavrov the other day said, well, you worry about the Ukraine war, but look at, look at what happened in Libya. They're still fighting. You guys started that. Nobody cares. And he, he was laughing at me. He was like, you know how long we had this war going on? No one cares. You never hear anyone yeah. talk about the war in Libya. Last three days ago, they it was almost they were at the at the at the brink of starting another another uh, battle. Nobody cares. No, I think part of it when I speak to people, some people are just genuinely unaware. Like I, my thought is British people born post the Second World War don't have a lot of reason to be fearful of the state. They've had a pretty good relationship with the state, and the, you know if you. Keep your head down. Work hard in in this country now in England in, in the UK. I'm just outside of it, but there, um, you you probably had a good life since World War Two, and no one blames the state for World War Two. That they, they see that as a thing that was necessary, and we stood up to Hitler. So really, you've got to go back to the 1930s to have people who really felt like they were dumped upon in like appalling working conditions, coming home to terrible living conditions, and it's been kind of okay since then. So I don't think people. I think there's a lot of people who just the BBC says what's going on in the world. And if it says there's a big crisis in, in Ukraine, there's a big crisis in Ukraine. And if it doesn't say there's one in Yemen, then there isn't one in Yemen. And Libya, that was all sorted out 10 years ago. So um, I think there's that. But it also seems to be more than that. Like, because I can almost feel this like a wave. Like, I'm not unaffected by it, where I can feel myself suddenly being pulled more into, like, where it feels like the Ukraine is more pressing than Yemen. Even though I know it isn't, it's almost like this wave of psychic energy passes through us all and carries our attention off and that's it's yeah. a weird phenomenon but i think and actually I, I having breakfast with my libyan friend this morning he said nobody cares about libya and you're all worried about ukraine and what's the difference and i said there is one difference first of all my ancestor like the the the, the european wars affected my family directly no and we killed what 100 million people between 1914 and 1945 yeah. And so that's, that affects us in a way that a war in, in Yemen or a war in Libya is not going to affect us psych psychically. And I think that part is true, that there's something there that we feel that, that maybe for us is more relevant than, for example, yeah. war in Libya. I, I agree. I, I, to a good extent, I agree with that. I think it's true that it's kind of silly to pretend that geographic proximity has no bearing on how you're going to react to a crisis and even a humanitarian crisis of course like you know if my neighbor's house catches fire i'm going to be more concerned about that than someone 100 miles away even though i can objectively say well it's you know the same thing um but it, it seems to go beyond that to me because people are expressing this great level of humanitarian care and concern for <laughs> the the plight of ukrainians in a way that it never occurred to them with, with yemen or libya yeah. No, and that is so true. And and it and it's difficult because you think, what's the difference? No. I mean, I live, I can be in I can be in Libya if I just start driving in seven hours. Wow. And so I have students who I have students who are traumatized from that war, Libyan students, who you can tell have been, you know, have certain tra trauma, and you think, wow. You know, I meet I, I met an Iraqi girl the other day. It was I mean, I was out, I was having a drink and uh she was telling me, you know, you know, it was horrible. So when you, when, I, I know exactly what you mean, but I don't think we can change. You I mean we can say, well, there's something wrong with that, yeah, but we can't change how, what what affects us and how we feel as humans. And this is a bit of a, a tangent, but I think there really is something to generational theory. You know, the fourth turning. Are you familiar with that whole theory of of the of the different generations? No, you know, not, the, not a fourth turn. No, I don't think I'm. I don't think I thought what I think is what you're. To, no, I don't think so. Yeah, the fourth turning is just it's just a generational theory by Strauss and Ho, how that that talks about every generation is about twenty years. So you have just think of it as spring, summer, fall, winter. The last winter we had was four generations ago. 
Right. And you see in U.S. history, you have the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Second World War, and we're at that point again. It's about every 85 years. Yeah. And I think it's almost like the seasons that we we feel like the war in Yemen was not something that we should pay attention to because it's but what's going on now. I think a lot of people feel this, that it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, we have a very big storm coming and this is dangerous. Yeah, that's that's true. Objectively, and I more. think that and I don't I don't think it's from a moral sense or an ethical sense. It's oh, shit. This is really serious. Hmm. I think that's what's happening. Well, yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for the presence of nuclear weapons, I would think, okay, Europe is headed into another substantial war. Yeah. But I think that the nukes obviously put a block on that and make people act with more caution. But yeah, this would be, I mean, I think Europe would probably have had a hot war a long time ago now, absent for the, for the nukes. But oh, yeah. um, this would, you, you would definitely be on the way there because you look at the kind of politicians, there'd be no incentive to, to calm the thing down. This would be escalating towards... Yeah, like the ground forces. I mean, I think you're younger than I am, so you probably don't really remember the Cold War. No, not really. I mean, one of my early memories is this thing called the Berlin Wall coming down. And okay, well, that, what's that about? And then I remember um, West Germany winning the World Cup in 1990 and, and wondering why it's West Germany. And then they were Germany a few years later. So that that's my, I don't remember it, no, as it, as it happened, really. But, like, I remember the Cold War, and I remember the TV doing that thing where, you know, in the case of emergency and the whole idea of a nuclear war, it was kind of a thing for us. To watch important politicians, generals, and everything pretty openly discuss what would happen if the Russians used a tactical nuke, I'm like, what? It's shocking to hear these people say, well, yeah, it's a possibility. I wouldn't rule it out. When we, when, when I was a teenager, the, the when one use of a nuke meant that was it, the world was over. And now to hear people say, yeah, it's possible. What would we do if you used a tactical nuke? Da, 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 blah, blah, blah. It's a little terrifying. Yeah. You can feel that something has changed. There's a shift here. And I just hope that we're not being prepared for, you know, something catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a dangerous moment. I think it's the most dangerous moment in my life, without a doubt. Yeah, I think that, that must be objectively the case. For you know, in terms of obviously, if you're in Iraq and a bomb drops on your head, that's a dangerous moment for you. But in terms of like global security, yeah. And, and just one last thing that from that generational theory, you should look into it. It's very interesting. You just if you just read the last chapter, the fourth mm-hmm. turning, it talks about what a fourth turning is like. It's all the old institutions collapse and decay and new ones have to emerge. Like in 1945, you had the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, Bretton Woods, all these things come into play, work really well for about four generations and then they collapse, they lose meaning. People lose faith in institutions and we're at that point. And one thing, all of my life, our leaders were great generation. They had a different attitude toward war. It was a very different view of what war was and what nuclear war meant. And I think some of the people now in power don't have that experience of just total war. And you see them talk about it, you know, send more guns to Ukraine. And you see some of the videos on Twitter, of people being killed, people cheering. It's a very strange uh, sensation. Yeah, it, it is. Like they say that in the UK that um, when the First World War was announced, people cheered and the Second World War, people groaned. And then yes. this, the Spanish-American War, apparently it was, all, it was all the youngsters like Theodore Roosevelt who who hadn't seen the civil war, who wanted to go charge again, whereas McKinley was more reticent having gone through it. Exactly. Yielded in the end. But yeah, that's, yeah, no, I think that the generational thing, I'm sure there's something in that, right? I'm sure that there are these patterns that play out over time. I've not, I've never really found I could could decipher them. I have no doubt they're there. Yeah. There seems to be a cycle to this. And and it's, it's almost like I can just feel it. My bones are getting sucked into something. Mm. And, um, you know, it's 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 scary and i'm not really sure how to how to approach it because there's two approaches to it i think one is do everything you can to stop it and that's a very logical sort of reaction and the other one is you know what it's like you're in prison and you got to pick sides you know like well okay i'll I'll end on this 
question then what's your sense of hope for the world and has it been changed by recent events because i think people have always fallen into to different camps on this like there's people involved in spirituality or some kind of geopolitics or conspiracy theory there's there's a camp that have always believed that we're moving towards a kind of global awakening and i think there was reason to be hopeful of that for a while it's like hey we've got the internet now we can write articles hey we've got you we can put videos up and document imagine if the whole world sees documentaries on 9-11 and the jfk assessment and understands the boundary systems good no there was like 10 15 years ago if you weren't um too jaded you could really have reason to be hopeful that we're we're um, having this global revolution and what, what i see is a lot more people now i think post-covid have said oh wow, yeah, actually people, a lot of people really just want to go along with whatever the state tells them. They are not interested. They have access to the information. They don't want to use it. And there's a shift from thinking about this as a revolutionary movement to more of a secessionist movement, to more of like, how do we how do we kind of get away from these people and and survive in whatever's coming as they drag them, as you're saying, like, what, what are these great cycles is going to take place and the world's going to go into a period of chaos? How do we survive and ensure our institutions survive that? that where's, what's your um, position on that, that kind of spectrum? And has it changed over the past few years of COVID and, and everything? I just have to say that, I mean, I, I began working in the internet in the, like the late 90s. I don't, I don't know if you remember that period, but it was yeah, yeah. a fabulous period. I mean, it was a, such a different feeling like, oh, my God, we've got it all figured out. And to see that decay into the 9-11 and then that the whole early 2000s, the financial collapse, COVID, this, that, and the other thing, it's like everything is speeding up. And um, I mean, when's the, do you use Twitter? I don't use Twitter. I've never used Twitter. I just, that's, no, that's I, a step I, too far I, for me. I remember I got onto Twitter and I, it, it fascinated me for a while, but I can't go near it. It's like going near, did you ever drink too much, some sort of alcohol and the next day you get that smell? That has happened, yes. Yeah, that's how I feel now when I even see anything related to Facebook, Twitter, I can't engage in it. I really think we're at a point where, like you said, there's a decay in all of our institutions and our belief systems. And we have to reach sort of that dark point where it seems hopeless before something new has to emerge. Whatever it is, it's not here now. And I have that feeling like there's nowhere to turn. Nowhere. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You have people who think Putin is the answer. I mean, are you fucking kidding? And then other people think Joe Biden and all these lunatics. No, the Europeans are going to save us. You know, it's like, it's, I wish I could kind of say something hopeful, but it really is that moment where it feels like there's nowhere to turn. And that all we have to wait for this to just, fall under its own weight and hopefully something will come out on the other end but i don't see um i don't i don't know what it is yet yeah it, it feels to me like there's not a will to construct something from where we're at like i don't know if it's worse than it ever was but when i look at american media now it it's very much the, the selling of hatred of the other is so obvious of right wingers right wingers left wingers left right wingers and just these different corporations telling the population to hate the other 50% of the population and they make a book of that and there seems like a lot of people buying into that where it, it does feel like there's a low level civil war broken out in the states it just hasn't gone to in, violence but it's when you when you're not in any way interested in engaging with other people but you live in the same political system then you are essentially in a kind of warfare then yeah Absolutely. And I worry, I really do worry about this. Have we hacked ourselves? So have we allowed these technologies to, to mm. hack our brains? And are we permanently damaged on a cultural level? That really does worry me. Like, for example, I use this phone. I will not use a smartphone. It's just something I, when I leave, I'm on the internet when I'm home, but when I leave the house, I don't want to have, I don't want to be connected yeah. to the internet. And when you do that, I highly encourage everyone just do it for three days and watch people and watch how we're and when, when you're not with a phone and you just watch people use their phones, you really begin to wonder, holy shit, they're all addicted to this thing. 
and who, that, that information is this completely distorting our view of the world, how we act, how we interact politically, socially, culturally. So that worries, honestly, that worries me a lot. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one thing I'm, I'm seriously worried about. Okay, Robert, I'm searching for something positive to end on. I don't know if I'm going to get there, so maybe just have to have you back on. Sometime. I, I mean, the only thing I could say is on the spiritual level, I do have hope, but it's not, it's, it's, and I don't want to go into that part now, but I mean, that's where I find solace. And in that place, it's just a bunch of bullshit anyway, right? (laughs) Perfect. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks a lot, man.